Welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Stephen Caradini. And I'm Chris Kreitcho, and today we're going to talk mostly about religion and ethics. Fair heads up to our secular listeners out there, we will get to some broader application, but we're going to open up today talking about some things that have happened in a fairly high-profile church and talking about things that happen in churches to start. So hang with us. We'll try and make it interesting for you along the way. This week, after a couple months of everyone However wondering what was going it. to happen... You could also count it as years, but we'll just give them the benefit <laughs> spe- of the doubt for months. Yeah, yeah. Spe- spe- a church named Mars Hill Church up in Seattle, fairly high profile because of its former pastor, Mark Driscoll, who's been in the news off and on over the past several years, sent out a notice saying, we're done. Uh, and basically they said they were laying off their immediate staff and all the churches that existed under this umbrella of Mars Hill were now going to be independent churches rather than sites of this one large mega church, which has had 13 campuses up to this point, and those churches will now all be independent and so on. This came as a surprise to some observers, myself included, in the immediate sense, because while I had kind of been hoping for this thing to happen with that church for a long time, I didn't expect them actually to get there so soon. How did they get there? Well, the short version is Mark Driscoll, the pastor who planted Mars Hill Church many years ago, has come under increasing criticism in the last several years. Much of it deserved, some of it not. Much and, of it deserved, though. We've even yeah. talked about some of his deserved criticism here on Winning <laughs> yes. Slowly in the Back early in... episodes of uh, Season Zero. Yeah. And he resigned two months ago, and no one was quite sure exactly what the future of the church was going to be, because the way this has worked has been Mark Driscoll most weeks getting video cast to all of these 13 campuses, and as well, well as... 12, two. I mean, one he's, right. one he's actually been at, been at, yeah. And so when he left, when he handed in his resignation in the face of this criticism that had mounted and gotten really pretty significant in the last year... But was still his resignation was still not asked for by the church right. itself. Right. He just went ahead and resigned. And so everyone was kind of wondering, well, what's going to happen with the church? Because they have other people they could pipe into these 13 campuses, but none of them have kind of the star power or appeal of Mark Driscoll, and certainly none of them have the charisma that let Mark Driscoll build a mega church with 13 campuses. Mm-hmm. And the answer is... Well, they're going to close their doors, and all of those other churches are going to keep being churches, but they're actually going to start being their own standalone churches, which the theologian in me says, yup, that's kind of what you should have done from the get-go. Yeah. So from my angle, uh, I've been following this because Mark Driscoll actually shows up as a character in one of my favorite books, Blue Like Jazz, where he is the Mark, cussing pastor, Mark, the cussing pastor. Um, so that was my first introduction to Mark Driscoll. And I have always kind of liked him since then, because that was an important book to me at a particular point in time. And I liked uh, the fact that somebody could be, you know, honest and raw about certain aspects of life and culture and everything. And so that appealed to me. So I've always had kind of an affection for Mark Driscoll, although he has been chipping away with, at it with <laughs> various and sundry things 
we'll just call them things. Um, <laughs> That's probably for the best. We we'll call them things. And so I've been watching this and seeing that he is a very magnetic personality. He was a very divisive personality. And it seems like it, there was always a tension there between these campuses that were growing and booming because of these his personality and his preaching and all of that. But there were also sub-pastors that were at these churches who were not necessarily getting the name recognition, but they were doing the actual pastoral work of right. being a pastor. Right. Um, and so when all these rumblings came out, I just immediately jumped to, oh, yeah, they're just going to split off all these churches and they're just going to be their own thing. Mark Driscoll's going to go off and do his own thing, be a book guy or whatever. And so I actually told Chris that I hoped that this was going to happen. Um, and I think I only said hope because even though my expectation was that this was going to happen, like Chris, <laughs> I also didn't think that it was going to happen quickly. Um, but then when he resigned, I thought that was it. There was, there was no going back. Matt Chandler was not going to take over the, uh, <laughs> the Mars Hill Church for sure. For our, so. our secular listeners, Matt Chandler is the pastor of another large multi-campus church who has had many fewer personal and ethical stumbles than Mark Driscoll. He has had cancer, though. That is true. <laughs> Not that cancer is a personal or ethical stumble. <laughs> not that it Lest is. Lest we be mistaken. Lest we be mistaken. We're not. We're not going to talk about faith healing or faith sicknesses oh, no. on this episode. No. Um, but I just. I don't even know why I said that. <laughs> uh, but so we could spend all day talking about Mark Driscoll and his ups and downs and foibles and whatnot. But what we thought was more interesting is to look at the church as an entity and what happens when you make this move, whether it's right. multi-campus or whether it's one ginormous campus. Uh, right. Famously, you have Joel Osteen's church, which seats tens of thousands, and you had the the Crystal Cathedral, which did likewise. And I would have other significant, significant reservations and problems with the theology of those particular pastors. But there are there are commonalities, and even someone whom I, I really like and who I think is doing a good job in many ways, the aforementioned Matt Chandler, or even a, a pastor in my own area, uh, J.D. Greer, who's got a very large, successful megachurch. Mm -hmm. We think it's in, important to take a, a step back and look and say, what are the long-term costs of this? Right. What, what is the cost of saying, we have this technology, let's use it, especially when you have a magnetic personality? Yes, we have the technology. There may be downsides. We can rebuild him. Yeah, we have the technology. We can rebuild all the things. All the things. But so this is an interesting point that brings us to an even more fundamental aspect of this question is what should a church do? Should it be a local small ministry that is deeply tied into the life of the community? Should it be a large gathering of people that are able to, you know, corporately amass a large amount of funds to do a lot of good in the world community and abroad? Should it be somewhere in the middle? These are all questions that many churches have to grapple with in a variety of different ways. Do we buy a building? Do we keep renting from the Y? Do we partner with another church? These are all big and weighty questions, and everything that Chris and I say after this is basically going to be our informed ideas and somewhat our informed theology, but this is all 
things that people grapple with and and deal with Mm -hmm. all day long. So we are definitely going to be presenting one idea here, the idea that we think is right, but... (laughs) Yeah, we're not just presenting an idea. We're not presenting an idea. (laughs) We're presenting the one we think is right. But we're also aware that there are a lot of other ideas and reasons for doing things the way that Mm -hmm. Chris and I would not do them. So this one is going to be a a little more subjective stance, subjective subject position than objective. And and that's especially true given that a lot of these guys, again, are are people we respect and that we Mm -hmm. think are doing good things. We just think the ways that they're going about it, well, as we often come back to here, the ways they're going about it may ultimately be antithetical to those goals. And I think I would go so far as to say that the mega church approach the multi-sided approach even a lot of times uh an unconsidered multiple services approach all of these things can ultimately undercut some of the fundamental purposes of the christian church we see going back to the very beginning and going back even to the context of jewish religion from which christianity sprang that this faith is one that is of a community. It is not merely an individual faith. And in America, well, we're a bunch of individualists, and we talk about this a lot because Stephen and I both think that's one of the ways in which American culture is can be broken. Uh, Individualism is not inherently bad, but individualism as expressed here often tends to an extreme that rejects the value of the community. We can reject the value of family. We can reject the value of neighborhoods. We've talked about these things. Well, Here, we also see a place where we can reject the value of actual real-life community in the context of the church. Right. Uh, When when Paul writes about the church, he uses metaphors like a body or a family, etc. And the same thing is true throughout all of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to be a body or a family when you're one of a sea of faces that show up and exit and maybe you stand next to the same people every week but most likely you don't and just go on with your life yeah and so the the flip side of this of course is that many people feel like their body has cancer when they're in church um (laughs) yeah and so it's it's difficult to say oh yeah we're a body and that person is also collectively some sort of part of my spiritual walk and that's a horrible feeling (laughs) Yeah. And that's and that's part of being in a community is that you you have to learn how to deal with and interact with a lot of people that aren't like you and that you don't necessarily like, which is something that Chris <laughs> and I have talked about before is that you can have Christian brotherly love for someone and not particularly get along with them all that well in terms of being able to have a conversation. I mean, you don't want to be animos anim, and you don't want to have animosity towards them, but in general there are some people that they just don't overlap with Chris and I's anything. And, <laughs> and but we love Jesus. But we love Jesus. And so we're still in community. And that is something that's deeply difficult and is frustrating at times and actually motivates some of these mm-hmm. these things is that it's very easy to just show up to something that feels like an event, not have to engage deeply, have some really incredible musical experience be really encouraged by a set of words and then call that church. Um, And so there's, there's reasons that individuality, which is already, as you noted, deeply tied into the Christian, into the American uh, set of ideals can be really relaxing and comfortable 
and comforting mm-hmm. in Christianity. But Chris and I both think that communities matter a lot, even when they are hard and messy, and even when they have to do things like censure their own pastor, which is what <laughs> happened in this particular situation, is that right. the elders said, look, we need to talk about this because this is becoming a problem. And so Mark Driscoll said, yeah, I think you're right. This is becoming a problem, and I'm I'm going to you know, to step down now. And so it's those sorts of conflicts and messiness that make community in, in broad sweeping generalities difficult sometimes, but Mm -hmm. we think that they're valuable. Yeah. And I would go even beyond valuable. And for the Christian, those, those kinds of communities where we're seeing unity forged across really, really different kinds of people, they're not just valuable though, of course, they are valuable. They're in some sense essential. They are mm-hmm. part of what makes our faith our faith. Uh, yeah. So much of the New Testament is a rejection of tribalism and a rejection of cultural or um, ethnic superiority, and instead yeah. a proclamation that God's salvation is for all people of yeah. every ethnic background and every linguistic background and every cultural background. And here I emphasize cultural background because here's the deal. I am a Colorado guy who aims for a a certain degree of intellectualism, and I try to avoid pretentiousness, but let's be honest, I can be a pretentious pedant when it comes right down to it. And yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sitting here and (laughs) Stephen knows I can be a pretentious pedant. (laughs) but uh i'm sitting here in north carolina and going to a seminary here and you know what there are a lot of guys from the mountains of north carolina who are as unlike me as you can imagine and in in a lot of ways you could probably find a random chinese grad student studying at duke here who's a christian and intellectual and find much more in common with him and me even though we're from other sides of the planet than mm-hmm. you would find between me and one of the guys who lives here in my neighborhood, who's just a mountain boy and Boom, he's great. North Carolina. <laughs> but we have nothing to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so dealing with these community issues is part of the reason that we have trouble maintaining these ideas of small community and why we mm-hmm. blossom and bloom into these huge Uh, ginormous churches, because in the absence of having to deal with these really difficult interpersonal experiences, it's very easy to latch on to somebody who is genuinely very gifted at speaking Mm -hmm. or at, you know, at at relating to people or, you know, doing these kind of pastorally bound traditions that we have of sermonizing, which are not the only ways that we've sermonized. Um, But it's very easy to latch onto some of those and let that kind of smooth over the mm-hmm. the differences in community and working to build that sort of community. And, you know, we're not saying that pastors who can sermonize well are bad because we need that sort of, <laughs> no. we need that sort of thing. Chris is going to seminary so he can do that sort of thing, hopefully someday. And, So we're not saying that that's bad. We're saying that the response to good sermonizing should not necessarily be, let's get as many people to hear this one sermon as possible. Chris and I are saying it's, let's invest in this community and try to get as many people to hear so that they can be encouraged to go start something like this in their own community. Yeah. 
And I think one of the things that's challenging there is there are pressures coming from both directions. You have all the pressures we just described of it being easier not to be in community from the perspective mm-hmm. of all the people coming to the church. Right. But you also have some some deep currents in our culture that push toward uh self-aggrandizement and institutional aggrandizement where bigger is always better and more is always better and this particularly can look attractive when you're thinking about evangelism which from a christian perspective is commanded and so there's a sense in which a focus on numbers reflects a very healthy concern that you know if we really believe that people's souls are at stake as we do Mm-hmm. then, yeah, we ought to be out trying to convert as many of them as possible. And the growth of our church can be, for for many of us, can look like a reflection of our faithfulness to doing what God has called us to do. But that can also run into some not-so-savory things, and it, it can be very easy to mix up the two and to justify things that are really just about making my own fame increase or making my church's fame increase in the name of all of these other good things. And they can be hard to separate out. I mean, just in my own heart, in my own experience, it's sometimes hard to separate out. Am I writing this blog post to do good to whatever audience I have, or am I writing this blog post so that people think I'm awesome? Yeah. And sometimes it's some of both. And I think we see that tension in the leadership of these churches Generally speaking, I think there's a real desire to reach as many people as effectively to tell them what we really think is the most important thing in the world. Right. But there's also very real human brokenness that means that that can get mixed up with self-aggrandizement. And as we've talked about before with pastors who write, when people think, wow, this person is really great, we should get them to reach as many people as possible. Because it is true, mm-hmm. there, there are pastors who are better at sermonizing than others. Yeah. And there are pastors who are better at pastoral care than others. And often these <laughs> are the two completely different categories. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, it's easy in our cult of personality. We're moving that way. Hold with us. We're almost there. Um <laughs> In our cult of personality, it's easy to say, this person is good at this thing. Therefore, this person should get to the most amount of people in the most ways that we can get them there. This is a a general trend, like Chris was saying, of evangelism, but also of everything. Like We believe that there are people who are objectively better than other people at various things, and that we should listen to those people. Chris and I are not against this. We think Craig (laughs) Mott is great. this is good. Yeah, we're glad you're listening to our podcast, not some random one you picked off of a wheel. So, you know, so we we believe in this. But the thing with the Christian life that is kind of antithetical to a lot of, of Americanism is that the Christian life is generally and sometimes specifically set up with limits. Mm-hmm. Um, it's set up to be a particular type of thing. Um, the churches that were built in... You know, the early times, they were built around communities, um, you know, people. Yeah. What? Communities embodying certain practices and making certain affirmations about the world and rejecting certain things as well. Rejecting right. certain behaviors is out of bounds for uh, both the members of the church and the and then especially for the leaders of the church. Right. And even, I mean, and some of those are, you know, the big bads, but some of them are the, the you know, the less bads, mm-hmm. you know, and some of them are, 
even outside of moral sorts of issues, they they get into, you know, practical issues like what is wise in this situation, not mm-hmm. necessarily even moral. Um, you know, what is the best way of doing things? How large should we be? How concerned should we be with size? Because there's a like you said, the, the underlying tension is if we do well, we will grow. Right. Um, which is not necessarily true. There are plenty of churches <laughs> I know that are doing well that do not grow and some even yes. die. Yep. Um, and that is just a reality of the way that church planting works. It's a it's a tough thing. Um, but there are also plenty of churches that grow that aren't doing the right thing. So mm-hmm. <laughs> what I yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And the point that 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 I want to make before we jump into cult of personality is that growing doesn't mean that you're doing good or bad, but it does mean that you should be considering splitting and growing and into ways that more reflect the communities that you're drawing from. Because if you're, unless you're in New York city and you're drawing massive numbers of people from a very tiny area, the growth of your church is going to be directly related to the growth of your footprint of that church. Mm -hmm. Um, And if your footprint becomes ginormous, then it's time to lop off the ends of that footprint and turn them into their own churches and bring in more pastors and do the growth that way. Because the, the biggest evangelistic success rates come from new churches, not from uh, churches that are growing ginormously and i know that seems like a weird statistic but or a weird fact but that's the way that that people who aren't churched grow into churches yeah and i think a big part of that is because the growth in large churches like the mars hill growth tends to be not entirely but tends to be a lot of people coming there from other churches and so that's a consequence that as leadership you have to consider you know as Stephen said, sometimes you think, I mean, we're doing it well. Maybe we're doing it better than the other people are. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if we recognize the unity of the people of God and not only the diversity therein, but we recognize that, hey, that church down the street, they're preaching the same gospel we are. Maybe we have mm-hmm. some differences about the way we're going about it. Maybe some of mm-hmm. those differences are important. But if if I go sheep stealing as it were to use the term that it uh gets thrown around sometimes when discussing this in seminary circles stealing sheep is a really? jerk move yeah sheep stealing yeah you're you know if if all of your and it's critical it's very much a critical term d- describing the reality of if you plant a church but all of your growth comes from taking mm. people from other churches yeah. you're doing something wrong you're just stealing That's other true. people's sheep and there's a problem with that so the last point I would make before we turn directly to the issue of personality and therefore broaden out is there is a technological component to this in that up until not that long ago, you couldn't do this. You could make a bigger building yeah. and maybe you could amplify it. Not that long ago, a century ago and a bit more, you couldn't even do that unless you had a Whitfield or a Spurgeon whose voice could project to 10,000 people. Uh, yeah. And so... There are challenges facing us and decisions that face us, as is the case in many areas that we've talked about on this show, that we haven't faced exactly this kind of thing before. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's easy for us to jump forward and say, well, this is cool. Let's do this. Or in, in these cases, this will let us reach more people. Let's do this. 
And while I'm sympathetic to that, I think there's a sense in which we need to be willing to stop and say, what does that lose us? Because with any technological yeah. advent, there are always gains, but there are also always losses. And sometimes in some context, we can say, oh, this is a gain over here, but over there, we shouldn't do it. Maybe we want to say all of our conferences, we're going to broadcast live to the whole world, but our services, we're not going to do that. You know, yeah. being willing to make those kinds of delineations for the sake of things like community and for the sake of avoiding hubris and avoiding self-aggrandizement, mm -hmm. I think is something we we really need to seriously consider as we come at these questions. Yeah. And Chris and I could talk about this all day. <laughs> we could. But, but we're going to turn, turn to ourselves, the end. Yes. Yeah. To the cult of personality. And that was really what what brought this whole issue to a head is that. Without Mark Driscoll, there was no Mars Hill Church, and they affirmed right. this very clearly by literally shutting down the church once he was gone. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know what this means for the flagship flock of Mars Hill, but in, in large part, Mars Hill equaled Mark Driscoll in the same mm -hmm. way that for a long time, Apple equaled Steve Jobs, Amazon equals Jeff Bezos, like... These are cult of personality figures who cut a wide swath through culture. Mm -hmm. You don't, you just have to say their names and then you know what type of thing is being referenced, even if you're not <laughs> talking about them directly. Like if I tell you it's a Mark Driscoll type of thing, like you know exactly what I mean. And so there's an element, like Chris was just saying, that this is a technological thing. Because a hundred years ago, if Mark Driscoll's up in Seattle doing his thing and I live over in North Carolina, it's going to be really tough for me to find out about him, one, but B, have access to his content on a consistent basis to then become part of his cult of personality. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you weren't going to be podcasting Mark Driscoll 100 years ago. Nope. Which, I mean, the flip side of it, of course, is that these issues of cult of personality are not technologically driven. They're just no. technologically enabled because... They're definitely, yeah, accelerated, let's call them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great way of putting it. I mean... The Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Spurgeon preached, did not do so well after he died uh, because yeah. it was very much driven by his skill as a preacher. And now we just magnify that and accelerate yeah. that. And the danger we see is that anytime you build any institution on a cult of personality, when that person is gone, you're going to run into serious problems. The institution may collapse. The institution will certainly go through a major period of crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, common of civilization's time immemorial, right? You can go back. <laughs> hey, to, Alexander the Great. Yeah, you can go back to the all the classics, prehistory. You know, these are not new issues. But what is interesting is that the cult of personality can get bigger than ever without having to be tied to a military force. Hey, Alexander. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Mark Driscoll get, did not have an army. <laughs> <laughs> at least not a literal one <laughs> right but uh that issue of the technology accelerating brings people who wouldn't generally be in the situation to be able to be in a cult of personality mm -hmm. brought into that um so it's entirely possible for me who grew up in oklahoma and was living in alabama to know at a pretty you know generic level but somewhat realistic level that mark driscoll was cool and i was a fan of what he was doing for a while there at least and so there's there's definitely a technological element and an ethical element that that kind of intertwine is that 
Like you said, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. But also, just because this person is the best at something doesn't mean that they're the only valuable one at it. Right. Uh, because it's so easy to say, well, this pastor doesn't preach as well as that pastor, and so I'm going to go to that church. Well, mm -hmm. that pastor with a great with well, that church with a great pastor who preaches well may have severe structural issues because he may not be a very good leader of people. Right. And, and, you know, maybe you, you trade off a little bit of, uh, you know, finesse in sermonizing for a much higher level of, you know, being loving a good people. godly leader. Yeah. Loving yeah. people, being their actual pastoral care person, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's tough because, yeah, he's not as good at sermonizing as this other guy, but that's should that be the only reason? And I think that goes back to, you know, what we want to get out of church, which is why we started right. at community and why we're going to end at community. Right. And I think in terms of applying that to a broader context, maybe it's time that we start asking those questions about our businesses and about other things, too. Instead of just assuming that the magnetic personality and the visioneer is the person who should always be leading— are there other qualities we ought to value? And I think mm -hmm. in the church, the answer is unquestionably yes. Uh, it is interesting that the ability to teach is only one of a very long list of qualifications for being a pastor of a church that yep. are given in First Timothy or Titus or these places like that. And I think as Christians who are participating, I mean, I'm not a pastor, Stephen's not a pastor, but we need to be working within the context of our churches to teach others that this is how we should think, and these are the expectations we have. Right. And then we need to be discerning and thoughtful when it comes to choosing our leaders and choosing whom we will follow and choosing where we will attend. Do we choose just based on the preaching skill? Do we choose just based on the style of music? Or are we looking at those other things that are deeper and in many ways more important. Yeah. And on the secular side, when we look at these giant corporations like Apple and like Amazon and these, I mean, even Tom's like these companies that have these big cult of personality things, even though they might be the most exciting and interesting, are they really doing the best thing? Right now, now in the case of Apple, you could sometimes say, "Well, yeah, they genuinely are doing the best thing." In the case of Amazon, you can almost certainly say, "No, they're not doing the best thing. <laughs> they're really not. They're just the biggest one in the sandbox." And so, yeah. there's there's reasons that you would say, "I'm going to go do this other thing over here," not because that thing isn't a great thing, or because it is, but because I feel like there are other valuable things going on. That may right. have a little bit less, you know, sexiness, but they work better or they're more sustainable or they're not doing mm -hmm. unethical practices of beating authors over the head with their publishers. <laughs> right. You know, you know, so there's there, there's reasons to, to look at our cult of personality and say maybe people with not such a great personality, maybe they're valuable. Maybe they're more valuable in some ways yeah. than these people who are big and shiny and amazing. Yep. This has been episode 1.16 of Winning Slowly. All of our content, as always, is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution License. So do as you like with it. Just say you got it from us. Uh, the content at the beginning, that song, Lighthouse by The Burgeoning, that is not our content. Don't use it without asking them very nicely. 
You can, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app, and you can follow us on Twitter, app.net, Ello, or Facebook. Until next time, I have been Chris Kreitcho. And I am and will be Stephen Garadini. Thanks for listening. The main problem we had was we were like, crap, we have too much to say! It's a software that edits softwares. Now, if it was a software that edited software editing softwares...